So I wanted to, uh, something I've had in mind for a long time to explore with y'all, the seven factors of awakening. Uh, and I'm going to talk about it this time and next time. And then we have a guest teacher after that uh, from, uh, from Colorado who will be zooming in. So the seven factors of awakening are quite extraordinary. It's like a, you could say it's like a, like a, like a walking trail, like a sequential trail that brings us to awakening. And it's a, the way they are presented, the way the Buddha presented them is kind of a unique window into his understanding about how this practice works, about how it leads us to awakening. And they were emphasized by the Buddha in the suttas many times as a clear description of the way forward. In the connected discourses, 46.7, I'm trying to use the citations in case anybody ever wants to look at, look, look at it. He says, just as monks in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, monks, the monk who cultivates and make much, makes much of the seven factors of wisdom, slopes to nibbana, inclines to nibbana, tends to nibbana. And nibbana is the Pali word for awakening. Nirvana is a Sanskrit version. Um, and by the way, I tend to read from the suttas a certain amount when I'm trying to offer because, you know, he's the guy who said it, so I'm just trying to share that with you all. Um, but he has this whole, this language he often uses about inclining to Nibbana or sloping to Nibbana. It's a real way, I think, of holding the fact that we're on a path that gradually gets us there. But it does gradually get us there. It's sort of inexorable. It's like, it, it, there's a confidence in it. It may seem slow, but you could see what people were talking about tonight. People are doing it. I mean, it's happening in the middle of the difficulties of life. So we're going to explore how a little bit about how these seven factors will incline us to Nibbana and how some attention to them can support our journey. So the seven are, there's seven mental capacities, sometimes called inner wealth. That's, Phil Fronsdell said that. Uh, the factors are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And, you know, the Buddha's lists are interesting. And on a certain level, all of those you may have thought about, read about, be working with in some level anyway already. So it's how they're put together in this context that may bring something helpful for you in the path. Because they're sort of, you know, mindfulness, it's like familiar turf, perhaps, all of these. But how he puts them together in this way is, is pretty interesting. It's really powerful. And so we're going to be exploring the first three tonight and then the last four uh, next time. And for those of you, for anybody here for whom these terms are unfamiliar, I don't think there is anyone like this, but maybe, you know, mindfulness is just a central practice, cultivating moment by moment awareness of whatever arises and passes. Investigation is a quality of 
recognizing the quality, the qualities, aspects, deeper aspects, understanding of what we're mindful of and what we're seeing in that process. It's not cognitive analysis, but careful understanding of what's happening. And then energy is that which keeps us going and that we can, for one thing, it emerges out of practice and also we can cultivate it to continue in practice. And I want to offer a little bit of context to help get a sense of these seven and sort of why they're important. And the first is that the seven are inherently sequential, meaning that each naturally leads to the next. And I've, I've gained, I don't know, confidence is maybe a word, reading the suttas for a bunch of years that when the Buddha points to something like that, it's like, oh, okay, I try to understand it. Because usually the more I look at it, the more it's like I start to realize, oh, yeah, that's actually true. You know, he, got, he nailed it. So in this case, I've been working with this for a while, and it's it's clarifying. But I'll just offer that. Take a look in your own experience and see if it seems that way. So this is not my didactic thing. Because that is one of the cool things about reading a sutta is you'll read a sutta and then go back, you know, a couple of years later and it's like, oh, oh my God. It's suddenly like whole stuff that was buried in there because pops out. And it's like you completely missed, at least for I, humble eye, completely missed it the last time through. So it's pretty, pretty amazing to do. So the sequentiality of the seven, you know, it's kind of a way, it's a way to engage with these factors that you may already be practicing with in other ways. But this, this seven factors is a way to engage with it that you might find useful, that they incline us toward awakening. And then the second thing, and now this is going to get a little bit down in the weeds of Buddhist lists, so I apologize for anyone who doesn't like Buddhist lists. But these seven factors are, in a sense, the grand finale is the word that came to me, but the culmination of two others of the Buddhist most important lists. So we're talking lists upon lists upon lists here. <laughs> but it's really interesting. So the first of these lists is the four foundations of mindfulness, which some of you know about in the six-week course was kind of based on that. It's in the Satipatthana Sutta. If you're ever interested, highly recommend it. Number 10 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And that's where the Buddha essentially explains to us what to be mindful of, which ends up being be mindful of all phenomena. But he unpacks it and presents it in a way that helps us get there. And the fourth of those... God, there's so many layers of lists here. It's hilarious. The fourth of those dhammas is in turn five lists in the Pali version. And the seven factors is the second to the last of those. The four dhammas are mind objects, mind objects translated usually. And it's the second to the last. And then they get a tiny bit arcane. There's a school of thought in the Chinese version of the four foundations, there's only two in the fourth, which is hindrances and the seven factors. So there's a school of thought that some of those were added. So if you wanted to know what's common among all the different schools, it would be those two. And in that case, 
the seven factors is the last one. So the point is, I know there's not too many lists, right? The point is to cultivate awareness of these seven steps, to be aware of them, to be mindful of them as we're cultivating them. Because that's right there in the fourth in the fourth foundation. So there's one aspect to be, they're, they're objects, they're like the subtlest, in a sense, objects to be mindful of and how that carries us forward in our practice. And then, I promised you, I'm almost done in terms of this, but some of you know about the the 16 steps of Anapanasati Sutta, the 16 steps of, of uh, breathing with mindfulness, which is an exquisite teaching. Where it's sort of the, the Buddha has several places where he walks us. That's another way, another way where he walks us towards awakening. It's extraordinarily, it's a very different kind of structure. And this is a wonderful sutta. I'll probably teach it again sometime this year, maybe. But after the after that, then he talks about. And he's having this conversation with Ananda, his attendant, and he says, well, actually, all of these lead to the four foundations, and then that leads to the seven factors of awakening. So it kind of walks right out at the end of it. So I say all this because it's, this is like really central stuff, and you can, it's a tool. I offer this as a tool. This is not supposed to be a bunch of complicated stuff to worry yourself about. But if you can find any place that you can find it to be a helpful tool, then use it, you know? And I think the way the Buddha wove these things together it's so extraordinary. And when we keep working with it, it's like, oh, it's like there's no place where it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It actually works. Okay. Sorry about overlisting. So to get back to simple, plain, immediate English. About the f- seven factors, the Buddha said in the, in the connected discourses, he said, bhikkhus, I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated, leads to the abandoning of things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. So the And that's actually what everyone that talked about tonight was talking about, things that fetter. They tie us to abandon them. So he's saying this is really, really effective. So it might be something to explore a little bit. Because sometimes, you know, in the part of what happens in the practice is we can get kind of lost. Like, it's just hard. Like, where's the compass? You know, that's what knocks us down sometimes. And so this, for some of you, at some times, this may be a helpful compass. And if it doesn't work for you, don't worry about it. But if it does, then, you know, see see what's helpful. So we're going to look kind of briefly at the first three and see what fresh light this brings up in the context of these seven factors. Because mindfulness, you know, we talk about that all the time. Is there any way we can look at it a little bit differently? And 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 by the way, I'm, I've got my own learning curve here about this too. So this is what I understand right now from the best I got. Um, so mindfulness, sati in Pali, is that's where our practice is. You know, that's the core, and it means to cultivate moment by moment awareness of this whole galaxy of phenomena that present themselves to us. To the six sense six door six sense doors, and sati also means remembering to not forget to do this or to not forget to be aware. So mindfulness and remembering to be mindful are kind of interlaced in that Pali word. 
And it's this unique tool. I think part of what the seven factors, it helps us understand a way to see what the role that mindfulness plays and then how it, where it goes next or where that mindfulness can go next. Because in a sense, mindfulness is simply the tool of being aware moment by moment. You know, we're just aware of what arises and passes. This moment, this moment, this moment. And in that process, part of what happens is things get less sticky. We see that they're not really us. It, it, it starts to unpack. And that's a lot of what we heard tonight. It unpacks different forms of stickiness. So we can find some freedom even in the middle of pain, even in the middle of difficult stuff arising from our conditioning. So the question of how how we look more deeply into the things that we're mindful of is the second factor, investigation. And it's this Pali term, Dhamma-vichaya or Kaya? I do not know. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm always appreciating Shannon over there. She's she's like she knows all the amazing amount of stuff, so it's very humbling and great. And so that's interesting, you know, to to think of it this way that we're mindful and then we're also looking more deeply, which doesn't mean figuring things out. It doesn't mean using our cognitive brains to analyze things or our psychological brains to analyze things, but just to look into it and see what clarifies. So take our mindfulness and, and, and like use it as a tool to see what clarifies. So you can see how from mindfulness, this in, it's almost like inherent. Oh, now we're mindful. Now let's use it. Let's see what we see. Let's be clarifying what we see. Look into it. So investigation is a pretty, pretty good translation of that. Cause you want to see what it is. What are we, what, what is discerned? What is revealed? in the process of this mindfulness under the heading of awakening and freedom. For instance, and this is where it kind of ties into this, the three characteristics and sometimes, anyway, when we talk about mindfulness, we talk about how it reveals the three characteristics and what's really happening is this investigation quality is doing that because we can become aware of our self-identification. And then, you know, everybody in a sense talked about that, the things that come up and we think they're us, and our ordinary inclination might be to go down some rabbit hole of not liking ourselves, of being overwhelmed, of being lost, of, you know, it being too much, so we'll do something else just to get our attention or distract ourselves. All kinds of things happen. But if through the power of mindfulness and this investigation, we can start to untangle our self-identification. That's amazing. And that's part of where this arena happens in this area of investigation. Or, you know, if there's a storm of emotion happening, to start to see through it. Doesn't mean we gotta psychoanalyze ourselves, but just see the experience. That's what that's the problem, is what hits us in our guts, knocks us over, blows us away. Be able to just see that so we can kind of ride through the storm and it doesn't take us out. And again, everyone was, I mean, it was so amazing, you know, between the what people were sharing in that very area. 
And we talked about in the course, in the course, we talked about this acronym RAIN that's really handy in a uh, storm of emotion. It's R A I N, recognize, accept, investigate, and non identification. Very powerful tool. You can find it online, by the way. If, uh, and it's, and it's, it's essentially it's a form of investigation. It's a way to look clearly at what's coming at us that would knock us down and, and, and a way to kind of use our mindfulness to see more deeply into the factors with which we might identify. It's a little bit of I see you, Mara, in a way, because we're seeing through. So this investigation is powerful, and you can see in the seven factors how it comes naturally from mindfulness. We have this tool of mindfulness, then we see, then let's look. And also, it's a way to see the nature of arising thoughts. You know, we talked about it being thoughting, which was in, as opposed to thinking. And of course, Gil Fransdahl has this great term where he talks about using the term thoughting. So, because thinking is sort of built into our English usage is the idea that there's an I who is thinking and it immediately gets us stuck. But thoughting helps us just see that this phenomenon is arising. Thoughting is happening. There's no, doesn't have to be a self doing it, just thoughting. And to look into that as it happens. As a great Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kinsei Rinpoche, who talks about this, the, the parallel between, a metaphoric parallel between thoughting and rainbows, insofar as they're vivid, they're here, they emerge from conditions, and there's nothing there. Thoughts are like that too, you know? He says, thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. So this tool of investigation is where penetrating insight really happens, or it's in one area anyway, where it happens, where this seemingly simple tool of mindfulness can really cut through all kinds of concretization. And we start to directly see impermanence, you know, and not self. They emerge just through how we apply, through investigation, this mindfulness. The Buddha said in the numerical discourses, when one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is Nibbana in this very life. So just in that glimpses of hints of tastes of Nibbana happens when you see through non-self right there. It's, it's like little flickers are happening. You're cracking open the door. So it's not nothing. It's really something. And then the third quality and how this happens, the third quality on the seven factors we're touching on is energy or virya in Pali. And it's interesting how that arises, rolls from this investigation because when we really start seeing when investigation is happening, that's actually pretty energizing. I mean, 
we sort of, we want to go there. It's like, oh, wow, you know, we want to see what we're seeing. There's energy in that. And you can see this quality of energy. It emerges, for one thing. The Buddha said in the Middle Length Discourses, in one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless energy is aroused, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused. And this whole area of energy is really interesting because there's almost like two aspects. On the one hand, recognizing the natural arising of it, and on the other hand, stirring it when we need to stir it. Because there's an aspect of choice or will, perhaps in that cultivation, perhaps. So in the first hand, yeah, it really does happen. Because you look at the um, you know, often when one is around a being who has practiced deeply and who is cutting through, seeing through into the nature of things, there is an inherent energy in the way they address it that reflects what they've seen. It's pretty amazing. I mean, all these guys are in something else. It's a great book. I always recommend it. Uh, Graceful Exits, The Death of Great Beings. Graceful Exits, How Great Beings Die. And man, they go down and they go down flaming. They don't go down in flames. They go down lights on. It's pretty amazing. And this energy factor is cooking with these people. A lot of Zen, a lot of Zen people who do this outrageous Zen stuff, you know, with their very last thing, but they do this outrageous sense stuff with just fire and presence. And so this energy factor is inherent in seeing how things are. And there is an aspect of this where this is like sort of, you know, the hindrances are the difficulties and this is the opposite of sloth and torpor. This is the upside. This is the, which is different from as another way, restless system, we're talking about that, but in terms of energy moving forward. So it's also one to cultivate. You know, there's choices. There's choices. And Joseph Goldstein talked about different translations of this. You know, it's always this... If I had it in me to learn Pali, I would. I don't think it's going to happen this lifetime, but if anybody is so moved, go for it. But he talked about the... It's really good to translate words. I did this big list of words and see what the translation is and try to understand it. Because he said this word in English has been translated as effort, strength, courage, vigor, or persistence. And all different facets of choices we make and how we approach the path. Because there's also, you know, on the one hand it arises, on the other hand we choose. And how do we choose? And what, what choices do we make? And how do we conduct our lives? And what do we do? with the journey we're on. So think about it. effort, strength, courage, vigor, persistence. You know, every one of those, I bet, I betcha, every one of you at some point has enacted or chosen. Yeah, every one of those. So that's powerful and that's really worth sort of that's why this, that's why the seven factors is really powerful because then you can kind of place it. Oh, okay. It's not just this random thing, but that kind of can arise out of investigation. And that's what keeps me going now. 
that's like a conscious thing to cultivate. It's like, don't give up. And even when it seems heavy, and, you know, here we are in 2023, and, you know, Susan was talking about the conditions of the world, you know, and such. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really hard. And we don't give up. Because this is, we also, you know, what we're seeing is truth and light in the middle of really difficult things. So there's this cultivation part. It's important, and this is, you know, inclining us toward nibbana. That's what the Buddha said, inclining us toward nibbana. So to be able to find and cultivate these myriad factors is really useful. You know, courage. There's a lot of courage in the practice, and you got to look at stuff. You know, there's no... You can't duck anything. You know, it's like the big the big bathroom mirror that like you got to see everything, right? So there's courage there, but we can get through it and then we're free. That's kind of how it works. And there's, you know, just kind of spiritual urgency is worth taking in. It's not, it's not like a, it's not like a project it's not like striving because the term striving has a connotation of selfing someone who makes it about, you know, me and my, oh, me and my Nirvana project. And it's just not like that. You know, striving is when people get all kind of hung up, but there is a certain <clears throat> urgency because of our short life, because of the alternative, you know, sucks and to really continue. And urgency and this energy that are kind of closely linked. We have no choice. And the Anapanasati, I think, yeah, that's probably the last thing I'm going to read here, talks about how there's like a little summation of how this how this works, just about the first three, the Buddha talking about how the seven factors come out of this practice. And he says... Here a monastic in a mind conjoined to mindfulness of breathing cultivates the awakening factor of mindfulness supported by seclusion, supported by dispassion, and supported by cessation, conducing to letting go. In a mind conjoined to mindfulness of breathing, one cultivates the awakening factor of investigation, the second one, of dhammas, supported by seclusion, supported by dispassion, and supported by cessation, conducing to letting go. And then third, in a mind conjoined to mindfulness of breathing, one cultivates the awakening factor of energy. The awakening factor of energy, supported by seclusion, supported by dispassion, supported by cessation, conducing to letting go. So all of these, you know, they're conducing to letting go, to freedom. So we'll be uh, talking about the remaining four next time around. Let's just sit for a minute. 